Well, I'll just start talking then. <laughs> Good morning, Crosswalk. Good morning. How are we doing? You are the, the faithful that have survived. Hello. That survived the storm. Stop it. <laughs> survived the storm last week. Uh, and I, I have to admit, I know if, if we, had, we had about 100 here last week, I think we're the only church in Portland last week that met. Mostly uh, people closed because they're parking lots. Ours wasn't great, but we were able to be here. But I am still having PTSD crossing the 205 bridge, having spent three hours there on Thursday of the week before. So anyway, uh, thank you for coming out. Some may not be ready to leave their homes yet, so we're a little lighter uh, crew this morning. But we also have... Lots going on. We've got uh, children's church happening, and we've got our walk in junior high, our junior high and high school leading out in that. So we're excited about what's going on down there, and we're excited about them starting weekly. Um, there's so many things to be thankful for. Uh, we're excited as well because, as you know, uh, many of you, if you're new, you don't know this, we are a church that is connected to other churches in the U.S. and around the world, uh, in uh, Redlands, California, Los Angeles, California, in Clinton, Massachusetts, uh, we have Lovewell groups in different places in Texas and Northern California and Melbourne, Australia, and our campus in Chattanooga, which was really the first plant, is excited today because they have announced a pastor. It's their first pastor, and we're excited for them as well. Um, so, lots to celebrate this morning. It is also March, in case you didn't know, which is I refer to as St. Me Month. The entire month is a celebration of me. So gifts, you can bring those accordingly. Uh, no, I, as the story goes, there was, at growing up as a kid, as a boy, with the name Patty, there was one day a year where that was cool. And that was St. Patty's Day. So uh, brace yourself. I start out the month in muted green. Next week we step it up. March 18, oh, it's coming, people. It's coming. You'll want to be here. We have special other things that are going to happen on that day. I also want to give a special invitation for you to come and join us next week for worship as our lead pastor for Crosswalk will be with us. Pastor Tim Gillespie uh, will be here in person, and he'll be exploring with us uncomfortable truths. Um, and he and I are going to do a little bit of truth or dare uh, up front, which is mostly going to be truth, I hope. <laughs> I'm not ready for dares. I'm getting too old for dares. Um, but we'll have a good time. This week, we are in our third week of our series on Uncomfortable, and we are exploring the concept of holiness. Now, I have to admit that as I spent time with this topic this week, I have been uncomfortable. I mean, how can I, a mere human, despite what some of you may think, um, how can I in 25 to 30 minutes wrestle with the topic of holiness? I mean, what do I say? What do I not say? Where do I even begin? When I dive into the scriptures on the topic of holiness, in a way, I feel like a fourth grader who is sitting at a desk in front of a chalkboard full of equations. Those equations have been written by Einstein himself. And Einstein is standing next to it with a piece of chalk, and he's looking at me, and he says, explain this. I'm pretty sure that in that moment, I would spontaneously combust. Because, in case you don't know, part of the reason the pastors choose theology in college is because they only have to take one math course. So pastors are just a bunch of people that don't do math. That's all it is. Scripture says this, but now... 
you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Be holy because God is holy. How in the world is that even possible? How can I be or do anything like God? Are you uncomfortable yet? Let's bring it down to a level of something we say here often at Crosswalk. At Crosswalk, we'll say things like, we want you to love like Jesus loves. We want you to give like Jesus gives. We want you to sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed. But even certain times to say that you should do something like Jesus is tough. It feels like sitting next to Beethoven on a piano bench and being told to make music like Beethoven, right? or standing in front of an empty canvas with a paintbrush and being told to paint like Monet, or standing at the half-court line and being told to make a shot like Damian Lillard, who scored 71 points last Saturday night. Can I get an amen? Amazing. 13 three-pointers. Just crazy. How in the world can you do those things? In all of these cases, I feel like I don't have a chance I couldn't come close to making music like Beethoven or painting like Monet or scoring points like Dame. These things are out of reach for me, and that is how I feel trying to tackle the concept of holiness. It is a concept that is truly otherworldly, and yet Scripture says repeatedly that we are called to be his own holy people, that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So though I feel unworthy and a bit overwhelmed and uncomfortable by today's task, I will do my best to take us on this journey because in this case, it is our discomfort that tells us we're on the right track. It is an awareness of our unworthiness that tells us we must be near to that which is truly holy. So what is holiness? It's important for us to define it because too often our definition of holiness is what holds it captive. Many think holiness is strictly linked to behavior, to morality, the ability to see the difference between good and evil and choose accordingly. It's not a far stretch to think that this is what holiness means when you simply look at the text we started with, to be holy in everything you do. Doing is an action-oriented word. It's a verb. So is holiness something you do? Well, if holiness comes through our actions, then holiness is something to obtain. This means you could do all the right things to appear holy, but internally you could be rotten to the core. In part, the Pharisees believed in this kind of holiness. It's one of the reasons that they made rules to keep them from breaking the rules, to keep them from breaking the rules, because keeping the rules is what kept you pure. And then it became about measuring which one of them could be the most pure and keep the most rules. They were holy by appearances, but as Jesus once told them, they were whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. This connection between obedience or our actions and holiness is also what gave birth to what is known as the purity movement in Christian history. And the purity movement focused on strict moral discipline um, and purity as the correct form of the Christian life. The Seventh-day Adventist Church came out of the Puritan movement. For, so for so long, we focused on all these external things like not wearing jewelry and modest dress and not drinking and these kinds of things. 
A strict adherence to sta these standards is what would lead one to live a holy life. But if holiness is strictly tied to behavior, then holiness really comes from us. Our morality becomes the source of holiness. Holiness becomes about doing better, trying harder, achieving more, seeking perfection. Holiness then becomes an earthly concept. Now, Jesus did say in an oft-quoted verse taken out of context, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we're going to spend some more time on this passage in a couple of weeks. It's really important. But today, just taking it at face value, I'll tell you this. I've tried really hard, but I've never had one day of being perfect. And if holiness is about action, would it make us uncomfortable or would it simply make us feel constantly disappointed in ourselves for not being able to live up to the holy standards? Wouldn't we just live with constant shame because we were not good enough, we're not worthy enough? So tying holiness strictly to behavior seems to limit the concept of holiness, but this is only one way we limit holiness, right? We also limit holiness when we seem to tie it simply to traditions, like how we call the 11 o'clock hour on Saturday or Sunday morning the holy hour, right? As if that is the only time that God connects with his people. Just because we do it often doesn't make it holy. Or we claim that a particular space is holy, as in the holy sanctuary, that is Old Testament thinking that says the presence of God is limited to space. Have you ever been told to hush in church? Or seen someone yell at a child for trying to play or run in church? All of these are how we respond when holiness is limited to space and time. I remember uh, as, as little kids, we didn't go to church often, but when we did, you know, it was something that we just weren't used to. So I remember one time we, we kept trying to climb under the pews. Any, anybody do that when you were a kid? You tried to get under the pews, see how far you could go before someone stopped you? My brother one time, he made it all the way. It was so cool. My, my other brother and I were sitting there like, go, 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 go. And then before you knew it, he was standing next to the pulpit. <laughs> he made it. His day did not end well. My dad, in fact, my dad was 6'3", and like, 380 pounds, um, and all my dad had to do when we got in trouble is he just had to say, assume the position. Yeah, so uh, in scripture, true holiness seems to be something else, something other than man-made, something not bound to the limits of our world. We first come into contact with the tension between that which is holy and that which isn't in a story from the book of Exodus involving Moses' encounter with God. There we read this. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him in the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look 
at God. There's at least three things to take note of in this passage as it relates to holiness. One, God's presence made the ground holy. I'm sure Moses had passed this plot of land hundreds of times as a shepherd for 40 years. But there was something different now. And what made this moment different was that God was there. Two, we also notice in this story that Moses covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. So we learned that there was something about Moses that the holiness of God brought to light and it scared him. And finally, we see that Moses had to remove something in order to enter into God's holiness. In this case, it was his sandals. But as we come to understand it for us, it is something much harder to remove. But let's unpack these a little more. God's presence is what makes something holy. If God's presence is what made the ground holy, then it is God that is holy. He is the source. He is the creator of all things, of life itself, and he sustains all things. Two different times in scripture, we're told of visions that people had, prophets had, of God sitting on the throne. And before the throne, there were these creatures that were crazy. They were covered with eyeballs and wings and all sorts of things. But they stood before the throne day and night, and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies in Isaiah. In Revelation, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, all, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. In the Hebrew language, um, words are repeated for emphasis. They don't really have words to describe the intensity of something. They don't have like sad, sadder, saddest. So what they would do instead was they would repeat words. If you wanted to write pure gold, there wasn't really a, a word for pure, so you would write gold, gold. So when you came across that, you would know that that meant it wasn't just gold, it was pure gold. Repeating something in scripture is done often, but repeating something three times, that is a rarity in scripture. God isn't just holy. He's not just holy, holy, pure holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. His holiness is beyond comprehension. He is pure beyond anything else we can possibly imagine. Pastor Tim wrote in the series guide about the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique within our solar system. It is powerful and is perfectly positioned to sustain life on our planet. Any closer to the sun and we would burn up, any farther away from the sun and we would freeze to death. So the sun is good because it sustains us, but it is dangerous. You can't get too close or too far away from it without dying. And this danger isn't because the sun is bad. It is because it is so good in its purest form, it could destroy us. This is the same for how we think about God and his holiness. God created us perfect, holy, pure in his image. But soon we doubted in his goodness and we fell from grace. We marred the image of God in us, as they say. And now we are impure, imperfect, unholy, and we have moved away from God. Our current state of imperfections become painstakingly clear in the light of God's perfect holiness. So our second consideration from the story of Moses is that when we enter God's presence, there is something about us that the holiness of God brings to light and it scares us. This happens throughout scripture, scripture when imperfect beings come into contact with something pure and holy. A person often responds with fear. They hide, they fall down on the ground as if dead, immediately looking to their own sins and their shortcomings. 
In Isaiah's vision, when he sees the Lord and the beings worshiping him, Isaiah responds by saying, it's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. Other translations say things like, woe is me for I am undone or I am ruined, or I am lost. In the light of God's holy goodness, Isaiah was undone. He knew he was unworthy and couldn't stand in the presence of God without dying because God was pure goodness and Isaiah was not. So how can you and I be holy? How can you and I be worthy? How can we, with all of our struggles, our sins, our imperfections, how can we become pure and survive standing in the presence of God? This leads to our last consideration from Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. We have to remove something in order to enter into or receive God's holiness. In the case of Moses, it was his sandals, but what is it for us? In the Old Testament, in order to be accepted by God, one had to remove one's impurity or sin. The model used to do this in the Old Testament was the temple of God. Through sacrifice, through blood, through ritual acts, one could be made pure, but that purity only went as far as your next sin. And even when you were ritualistically pure, you were still limited. You couldn't by any means run into what was called the most holy place, because that was believed to be the place where the presence of God dwelled. And there was only one person allowed in that room, which was the high priest, and only he could go in there one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And before he went there, he actually had to follow a whole slew of guidelines and standards. Rabbinic tradition actually tells us that even going through all of those things, the high priest would still enter the most holy place with his knees knocking because he was afraid he would drop dead in the presence of God. So the Old Testament makes it clear that you and I, no matter how good we are, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many rules we follow, we cannot, of our own, be holy. We cannot, on our own, bridge the gap between God's perfection and our imperfection. Holiness, for us, is unattainable. That is, until the gap between holy and unholy was bridged by God himself. Holiness took on human flesh. The holy, uncreated one became created and entered our world. One time, I came across a simple napkin diagram of the story of salvation. It's so beautifully simplistic. Here's how it works. Keep in mind, I, I come from a long line of artists for stick figures. So uh, keep that in mind. So here's how it works. There's us, right? And there's God, but there's a separation, a huge chasm separation, and that is our sin. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot bridge the chasm. Even the best of us, the Mother Teresas, the, the, the Billy Grahams, the Sam Lenores. Yeah, even Sam can't bridge the gap. No matter how hard he tries, no matter how beautiful his hair is, he can't get there. So we needed something that would take care of sin, but also bridge the gap. And as we bridge the gap, therein lies the cross of Christ. That, my friends, is what brings us to restoration. It is what makes us holy. 
And with him, we can do all things. Together, we can do immeasurably more than all he could, we could ask or imagine. And apart from him, we can do nothing. So, with this model, remember back to the picture of holiness being analogous to sitting at a piano bench and being told to play like Beethoven. There's an old story, it's one of my favorites, where I think it brings this model um, into something that we can understand. So the story goes that way back when there was a famous concert pianist named, uh, oh, his name, I'm, I'm gonna get the last name I get, it's Poland's own Ignacy Jan Paderewski. And a mother decided to uh, bring some culture into her five-year-old son's life by taking him to Paderewski's concert. And so they got dressed up, they went to this grand concert hall, one of the ones with red velvet all over the place, three balcony high, everybody there was dressed to the nines. Mom was holding the hand of her son, trying to talk to her friends from high society. And as you can imagine, the five-year-old was doing what five-year-olds do. He was squirming, he wanted to run. She finally got exacerbated, and so she took him to their seats. She sat him down, and she said, stay here until I get back. Good idea? No. But she went back, she started visiting with her friends, and it wasn't long before the lights in the place flickered, signaling to everybody that it was time to go back to their seats. And so she went back to her seat, and sure enough, to her horror, her son was gone. She started panicking, she went up and down the aisles looking, she asked everybody she passed, have you seen my boy, five years old, he's got dark hair, and then she went out to the lobby, she didn't see him, she went back into the auditorium, and pretty soon, the lights go out. And then a spotlight hits the stage, lighting up a grand piano, and there to her horror was her five-year-old son sitting at the grand piano. She was scared. He didn't know what to do. It was silent. And suddenly he put his hands up to the keys and he started to play the only thing he knew, chopsticks. <laughs> People started to laugh. But then the laughter turned to angry yells because this five-year-old had desecrated this sacred holy hall, this sacred moment for the great Paderewski. And so they were yelling at him to stop, yelling him to go on. He just kept playing chopsticks. He didn't know what else to do. And then pretty soon, the crowd hushed in silence as Paderewski stepped into the light. They got quiet because they wanted to hear what he was going to say to this five-year-old who was messing up his moment. And Paderewski walked close to the boy, the boy still playing chopsticks, and he leaned over and he whispered in his ear, just keep playing. And pretty soon he took his hand and put it on one side of the boy and started to play, and his other hand on the other side of the boy and started to play. And pretty soon he had taken this five-year-old's simple little offering and turned it into a masterpiece. That, my friends, is how the holiness of God works. God is the source, and in his love and because of his grace, he chooses to imbue us with his holiness. He removes from us, as the prophet once wrote, our righteous deeds, which are like filthy rags, and he clothes us with his robes of righteousness. He makes us his temple, his dwelling place. How does this happen? First, 
we must recognize our need for him. We recognize that it is in our weakness that his power is made perfect. It doesn't say that his power shows up in our weakness. It says that it is made perfect in our weakness. And we do so by confessing our sins because we've all got them. As the disciple whom Jesus loved once wrote, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness or all unrighteousness. He cleanses us of our impurities. He makes us clean through the blood of the Lamb. Then he calls us to be his holy nation, bringing the start of healing and restoration to his creation here and now. And, and, and we celebrate this decision through baptism. If you haven't made that choice, surrendered your life fully to him and, and received that, please come and talk to me. Talk to Pastor Lydia, Pastor Uriel, or one of the leaders, and, and we'll, we'll talk about what that means and what that looks like. We'd love to have some baptisms on Easter weekend and celebrate. So as we work hand in hand with God, he redefines holiness through us. Holiness isn't about being perfect or about morality. It's not limited to time and place. Holiness is the presence of God dwelling in us. Holiness is something God does to us and through us. He restores us and then through us, he begins the work of restoring his creation. And you can see what happens in the life of Jesus who represented the presence of God, who was God in the flesh. Wherever Jesus went when he was on this earth, the curse from the garden began to be reversed. People were healed. People were restored. Dead people came back to life. So through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and with the Holy Spirit breathed into us, we are now Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us, for God made Christ who never knew sin to be the offering of our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So Christ restores us to God. His presence in us makes us holy, and we are sent into the world to bring healing and hope to others that they too may know the one true God. So now, holiness isn't just something that happens in a cathedral with stained glass windows as a choir sings the hallelujah chorus, as much as of a transcendent moment that can be. But holiness now is a single mom who sacrifices something for herself so she can put food on the table for her children. Holiness now isn't just a burning bush in the middle of a desert, but a nurse in a hospice center who is holding the hands of a family whose loved one is taking their last breaths. Holiness is a belly laugh with a trusted friend, a prayer lifted in solitude for a loved one, a secret shared in a coffee shop so a person knows they're no longer alone. Holiness is now a church that comes together to love well, providing space for people to connect with God, find healing from their past, and care for their neighbors. Friends, let me tell you, it's, not, it's something I get to see on a regular basis, but not everyone that walks into this place gets to see it. Almost every week, I hear a story, a story of someone who hasn't been to church in a really long time, but they've missed community. They've missed coming together to worship. And the courage it takes for that person 
some of which have been horribly wounded and scarred even by well-meaning people in the past. The courage it takes for them to come to our parking lot, to get out of their car, to walk through those front doors and to come in here, I just, I can't imagine. But time and time again, I hear from people that they were loved here, that arms were open wide for them here, that this place is different for them here. This place is holy for them here. So thank you to those that have helped to create that space and for those of you who need it, continue to absorb and drink it in. And then when it is time for you to take a place in helping create more of the spaces for others, let us know. That's what we're here for. Holiness now is the presence of God working in and through us, his children, to bring a little more of heaven to earth. We are his ambassadors, a holy people, a royal priesthood, and through, and though his holiness may make us uncomfortable because we don't feel good enough, then friends, take a lesson from a five-year-old and just keep playing. Letting God take your simple offering and turn it into a masterpiece of his love for you and for his beloved creation. Let us pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you who are holy, 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 we come into your presence and we know we are in need. We have sin to let go of. We have forgiveness to give and to receive. God, we need you. And we are thankful that you have given everything. You have bridged the gap of heaven and earth of holy and unholy, and you invite us into your presence. You send your presence to dwell in us so we can be your instruments of love and grace and change here in this world. Help us to be your ambassadors. Help us to love well wherever we are that we can bring holiness and glory to your name because of who you are and what you've done and because you dwell in us. We love you so much, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your precious, holy name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. We invite you to stand back with us as we continue in worship.